Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Analog Deterrence Our host is Dr. Adam Laufel, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, as always, Adam Wilder, and today we have with us Alan Carr. Alan is the senior historian at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and he's with us today as part of our legacy series in which we're discussing the history of the labs and of the United States nuclear program. Alan, thanks for coming on NucleCast. Oh, it's great to be here, Adam. Thanks very much for the invitation. Now, so as the historian, the senior historian at Los Alamos, you've been there for more than two decades. You've been working the lab's history for, you know, most of your career, and you know it well. And we've had a few past episodes where we talked about sort of the early years, you know, based on the Oppenheimer movie. But one thing we've not really discussed, and, and I don't think it really gets that much discussion, is those years that came after Oppenheimer left the lab, and then the lab sort of had to turn itself into a permanent functioning entity. And then it had to grow and, you know, begin part of, become part of this larger nuclear complex that was going to build the nation's nuclear arsenal that, you know, ultimately was more than 30,000 nuclear weapons. So it was, it was a big, it was a big enterprise and Los Alamos played a critical part in that. So can you start us off sort of this post Oppenheimer when the lab says, okay, we're here to stay. Now what? (laughs) Exactly. Now what, you know, I really appreciate the question, Adam, because, you know, while the Manhattan Project in World War II is a fascinating, very important topic, uh, the laboratory is still here, and it's a very different place now than it was back during those years long ago. And so, you know, right after the war was over, Oppenheimer left very quickly after that. He wanted to kind of fade back into academia. It never quite worked out that way. Of course, he was the most famous scientist in the world, maybe in history, at least for a time after World War II was over, um, the laboratory would need a new leader. Uh, It would need a new mission because, of course, the laboratory's original mission was, you know, design, build, test, and help deliver, you know, nuclear weapons as quickly as possible. That had been accomplished. Um, there There were all kinds of issues. So many people that were working at the laboratory during the war, they left. You know, it was a very young staff. A lot of them wanted to go back to school, finish their degrees young professors who wanted to go back as well. Um, Sometimes, you know, the narrative that we hear about, uh, you know, immediate post-war Los Alamos is that the laboratory was on the brink of collapse. It almost evaporated and went away. That's not really what happened. Uh, Although the laboratory was facing all of these issues, the Manhattan Project, which continued through 1946 uh, and was still led by General Groves, it continued to pump resources into Los Alamos. You know, that never went away. There were major construction uh, or major facilities under construction in late 1945 and into 1946. 
it uh, it looked, uh, you know, as those months went by, it became almost unavoidable that Los Alamos would remain the production center. And so, of course, you know, when we think about production during the Cold War of, of, of pits and things like that, we think of Rocky Flats. Well, Rocky Flats didn't exist until the early 1950s. Los Alamos had that mission also. And so there was a lot of money, a lot of infrastructure being invested in Los Alamos. Norris Bradbury became the director after Oppenheimer. Uh, Oppenheimer and General Groves both wanted uh, Norris Bradbury to take over. Uh, Norris didn't want the job. He was a, a Naval Reserve captain. He was a, a Berkeley-trained Stanford professor. He wanted to go back to Stanford, but he was a very duty-oriented person. And Bradbury said, you know, I thought about it for a while, and uh, I agreed to stick around for six months. And ultimately, he stayed for 25 years as the director at Los Alamos and really did a lot to reinvent the laboratory. But, but I think that really we can look at multiple things that held the laboratory together. One, as I talked about, was kind of the, the infrastructure and investment portion of that. Another was Norris Bradbury's leadership. Once Norris knew he was going to become the director, he immediately started doing triage and trying to fix as many issues as he could. Uh, another significant thing, I think, was Operation Crossroads. And so, you know, there, uh, the weapons designed during World War II uh, did what they were brought into existence to do. Uh, but those weapons, just because they were created very quickly, doesn't mean that they were, you know, the safest, most efficient, most, you know, accurate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of room for improvement. And, of course, the Navy... Uh, improvement aside, the Navy was interested in knowing, you know, can the fleet survive nuclear attack? And so we got an order from the Navy. And then again, there were refinements to fission weapons that needed to be made. And of course, there was the pursuit of the H-bomb that even started before the laboratory came into existence. So, so all these things kind of came together to, to help Los Alamos have a, that immediate post-war future. And then there was the Cold War that, uh, kind of crystallized as those months and years went on. So one of the things that, you know, I can empathize with is this idea of, you know, like a guy like Norris Bradbury, who's, who is a good scientist in an, you know, in his own right. And for, you know, guys like him, guys like me, you know, I like doing research. That's why I went and got a PhD. And why a lot of these guys, they wanted to do the the work. So they didn't really aspire to, you know, managerial roles. They wanted to do science and, and you know, invent things and find new things. Was there a challenge for these folks whenever, you know, it came to, they wanted to go back to their universities so they could do the science, do the, you know, be professors and, and not have to necessarily play a part in this larger sort of army bureaucracy that, you know, started to, to form. D do you see in, you know, your look at the history of the labs and the people that played roles, was there, how did this sort of work out of this, juxtaposition between, hey, I want to do science and innovative science versus this sort of, I have to manage programs and people and all of those elements. How did that sort of play itself out? You, you know, it was it was an easier sell during World War II to get people interested in, in work because the war was going on. You know, there was a perceived race with Nazi Germany build nuclear weapons. There was the specter of some other country developing nuclear weapons first. And 
you know, Louis Alvarez, you know, future Nobel laureate at that point in time, uh, in, I think it was the fall of 1944, you know, he wrote a letter pertaining to this. He said, you know, as soon as the war is over, patriotism is going to become obsolete. Everything's going to change. It's become going to become a lot more difficult to recruit and to retain. And, you know, a, a lot of really good scientists are just want to gun it. They're going to want to go back to universities and do what, you know, as you described, Adam, what they were trained to do, uh, just, you know, research, exploring science, not necessarily, uh, you know, doing bomb work and things like that. And, and that did happen. You know, a lot of scientists, uh, ultimately, including Louis and many others, uh, while some of them maintained at least a finger hold in defense pro programs and different things like that, a huge, uh, a huge amount of the staff at Los Alamos went back uh, to universities to do uh, to do research. And of course, I think there, you know, so many uh, scientists in so many fields uh, can trace their origins back to somebody who was at Los Alamos during World War II. I've met many people over the years who say, oh, yes, you know, I worked for this professor, studied under this professor, and uh, they were at Los Alamos heard a million of those stories before. Norris knew that this was going to be an issue also as the director. And so from day one, he pushed for a basic science program at Los Alamos. You know, Los Alamos should not be constrained, you know, strictly within the work of making practical nuclear weapons. This is a new technology. This is new science that's being discovered with possibly a lot of different applications, not just the development of nuclear weapons. We need to be on the cutting edge of that, and we need these basic science programs to do that. And I think that his philosophy on that was adopted by the Atomic Energy Commission once it came into existence in 1947. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what it looked like from day on. A lot of people left, a lot of people stayed, and, and I think both uh, had benefits for the nation, those who went back to universities and certainly those who stayed at Los Alamos as well. So Norris Bradbury selected, and he says, I've got a big problem. I've got to create this sustainable lab. So all that quick army construction that had, you know, that took place, when did we start to get sort of the facilities that we still have today, you know, that are, you know, 70 years old that are, you know, but they were, you know, they were more than just, you know, that quick army construction. What? when did all of that take place? I mean, my favorite place up there is, you know, I'm a skier and I was at, uh, you know, Kirtland Air Force Base. So I'd go to Parido and, you know, I'd go to bathtub row and, you know, but, but this, so there's, there's this historical context, but then there had to be that expansion of the lab for the cold war. Right. How did that process play itself out? You know, I, I guess looking at the Cold War, and, and I'll share quickly uh, kind of the American perspective. There, there's a very different Russian perspective uh, on this, but the American perspective is, you know, the Cold War was not something that just kind of materialized in 1946 and 1947 and with the Berlin airlift. There had always been great hostility toward the Soviet Union, and the feeling was very mutual. Uh, this goes back to the revolution, uh, you know, of course, there, there was Stalin. The, the United States didn't diplomatically recognize the existence of the Soviet Union until 1933. You know, Stalin had killed, I think the estimates range between three and 20 million of his own people. 
uh, you know, got rid of half of his officer corps, which is one of the reasons why they fared so poorly in World War II, worked with Hitler to start World War II by invading Poland. So <laughs> World War II was kind of this pause in a very bad relationship. And, and Hitler was this adhesive that brought countries like the UK and the US together with the Soviet Union. That went away. And after the war, we started to remember uh, all of the issues that we had with each other, if you will, the US and the Soviet Union. And those were amplified as the 40s went on. And, and I think that, you know, with people like Stalin in the world, it became clear, yeah, nuclear weapons may be around for a while. And, and that helped to solidify the future of the laboratory. Now you're getting into 1947, 1948, of course, Berlin Airlift starts in 1948. And that's going to lead to a series of really uh, high profile, very dangerous Cold War events. So you've got the Berlin Airlift, the Berlin blockade. So uh, the Soviet Union tests their first nuclear weapon in um, August, at the end of August, 1949. The Korean War starts. China becomes a communist country. And all these events happen within a couple of years. No shortage of news to report <laughs> during those years. So at Los Alamos, you still had very much this World War II kind of temporary infrastructures, uh, buildings that were built very quickly and were not of the highest quality. But again, that was because you had hundreds of Americans being killed during the war every day. The job is we need to get the job done as quickly as possible. Now, as it became clear, Los Alamos was going to be, you know, probably a, a very permanent part of the country. There needed to be a completely new round of investment in both the laboratory and the community, because one thing that Norris recognized was, well, we have to make Los Alamos like a nice livable place. Maybe we should get some pavement and some restaurants and, and better school buildings and things like that and better housing. And so those were issues. The, the laboratory and buildings that are still in use today uh, that you will see, like uh, the, like the CMR building, which is almost empty now, but CMR building, the SM39 machine shops, uh, where the mailroom is, things like that. A lot of these, uh, you know, big concrete structures were built in the early 50s. The first, uh, you know, the, the original kind of main technical area was built around Ashley Pond in the center of town, for those who are familiar with Los Alamos. Uh, everything was moved to another Mesa, to South Mesa. Uh, and, you know, the first, uh, I think that the bridge, you know, the uh, Omega Bridge that was opened, I think, around 1950, that kind of opened up South Mesa. You had the administration building opened in 1952. It's now a parking lot, but it was a big uh, multi-story permanent building uh, where the director sat from 1950, 1952, somewhere in that time frame. Was it 1952, 1955? Maybe it was 1955, uh, all the way up into the early 2000s, you know. And so those buildings start popping up uh, basically as part, I, I think very much as part of the expansion of the complex. As, uh, you know, Los Alamos could keep up with the production demand in the 1940s because the United States had a nuclear monopoly. But once Stalin has nuclear weapons as well, we're going to need a production center because there's going to be an arms race. And of course, that materialized. So Rocky Flats was built. Los Alamos lost that mission. And I would say gladly, you, you know, we, we wanted to be more focused on science, less focused on production, both important. Sandia, which had started as a Los Alamos division during World War II down at Kirtland that you mentioned earlier, Adam, uh, it became an independent laboratory in 1948. 
uh, living work becomes a laboratory, I believe in 1952. And so you have all of these facilities that are coming into existence. Los Alamos is growing and the threat of the Cold War and the stakes are growing uh, along with the stockpile. It's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So when we come back, I, if you could sort of get into when the lab realized that the Cold War was going to require, you know, a lot of different warheads, a lot of new science, you know, focus on miniaturization, focus, all these sorts of things that really started to take place. You know, how, what was that process? How did it work? You know, who, how did they sort of organize for this much bigger challenge than they had faced during the war? So you're listening to Nuclecast and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Alan Carr, senior historian at Los Alamos National Lab. Now, I asked you a question before the break, and I'll turn it over to you for an explanation. Right. So, you know, in the in the beginning of the nuclear complex and the nuclear weapons era, uh, the, the military, just as it is even to this day, was kind of the end user. They were the customer. And in those early days, the military kind of took what we could get for them, <laughs> you know, because the World War II weapons, of course, uh, Little Boy and Batman, um, those were rushed to completion for obvious reasons during World War II. These were not highly refined weapons. They were not highly optimized, uh, you know, again, not particularly efficient or safe or things like that. Um, as Los Alamos and ultimately Livermore, with support from Sandia uh, National Laboratories, plural, helping both the laboratories at Livermore and Los Alamos, um, as the laboratories refine this technology, uh, that enables the military to come back and place more specific orders. So instead of just taking whatever we could make, uh, as we got better at it, you know, the military would come back and say, well, hey, can you make something this size with this yield that can go, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's one of the things. So we got better at design. We were able to become more innovative uh, as time went on. And um, so that's the one, that's one thing. The other thing is that when you're talking about nuclear weapons and deterrence, uh, you need delivery systems. And in those early days, the delivery system was basically a bomber. And that changed over time. So you get into the early 1950s, things like rocket technology are not very good. But by the mid 50s, and especially the later 50s, you know, it's Sputnik. Now, there was a lot of work going on in the US, which is overlooked leading up to Sputnik. Uh, but we were getting much better at missiles and, and different things like that. So you've got kind of the, the technology of of rockets and missiles and submarines and and bigger, faster bombers and all of these other things going on. That's one side. And then in terms of nuclear weapons, you've got weapons that are getting smaller and safer and more efficient. Uh, and so you put these two things together, all of a sudden to hold Moscow at risk, you don't need a slow lumbering bomber with a really giant heavy weapon on it. 
Now you could put a relatively small warhead on the end of a missile, and it's much more survivable than a, a World War II era bomber or something like that. So, so as the technology changes, the military has more options. And, and I guess, you know, the way that I think of it, Adam, is maybe today we live in the, the internet age. I don't know if anybody uses that, but we, we do so many things on the internet that we used to not be able to do. Everything, you know, and if somebody comes up with an idea, we figure out a way to, to sell it on the internet so that everybody can have access, things like that. Uh, I would say that, you know, in the 40s and in the 50s, it was the dawn of the nuclear age, if I can be trite. Right. And, and everything was going to have a nuclear application, both for peaceful purposes, but also for the military. And so the military was interested. Well, can we make a nuclear bomber? Of course, that was a long term expensive project that didn't really work out all that well. But a lot of technology, remarkable technology came out of that. Uh, what about nuclear powered submarines and, and big capital ships like uh, aircraft carriers? That idea did work out a little bit better. What about nuclear rockets? You know, early on, there was a big nuclear rocket program at Los Alamos, uh, ultimately for delivering really heavy hydrogen bomb warheads. As that became unnecessary because of the miniaturization and the development of missiles, it was rebranded as a space technology. And that went on. And Los Alamos built four, or I should say three, working nuclear rocket engines to take people to Mars instead. So, so the militaries, you know, they're interested in any possibility. Uh, this would include refined war fighting fission weapons, you know, um, tactical nuclear weapons, as we now call them, battlefield nuclear weapons. Because remember, in those early days of the 50s, there weren't really enough nuclear weapons and they weren't deliverable enough to really have a philosophy uh, or, or an approach like mutual assured destruction. It was much more, how do we fight and win a nuclear war? <laughs> so in that context, mutual assured destruction doesn't sound quite as scary as opposed to what they were planning early on. So you've got nuclear depth bombs. You've, you've got strategic nuclear weapons, really high yield nuclear weapons that are used every day in a deterrent role to make the enemy think twice about possibly sparking a third world war or something like that. And over the course of these years, between liver and war and Los Alamos, uh, I think uh, I think approximately 90, maybe a few more different nuclear weapons systems were produced for all of these different applications. One of the very popular applications, defense. You know, the, during the, uh, uh, you know, for years in the later 1950s, we thought that the Soviet Union had, you know, maybe a thousand bombers, 800, a thousand bombers that would fly over the North Pole and destroy the country. The bomber gap, the missile gap. Well, well how do we take those bombers out? We're going to have thousands of air interceptor missiles, many of them with nuclear uh, uh, devices on the tips as well. So, so uh, you know, again, technology enabled a much more diverse nuclear stockpile than would, would have been available in the 1940s. So with Los Alamos being sort of the original lab and then, you know, Teller goes and stands up Livermore and then he ends up he's not the best manager. So he plays a scientific role and, you know, you bring in somebody else to manage the lab. When did this competition between Los Alamos and Livermore, you know, as design labs, you know, they're the two design labs and they have very different approaches to design. And, and, you know, for much of my career, 
as an Air Force guy, you know, it was you always go to Livermore because Livermore was sort of the Air Force lab and Los Alamos was seen as the Navy lab. So how did that sort of competition get kicked off? And then are there any interesting stories, you know, that just sort of highlight this relationship or this, you know, competition between the two labs? Right, right. You know, um, Los Alamos was the only design lab. Uh, you know, for for the first several years of the Cold War, and I do think that Teller, but maybe especially Lawrence. I mean, you know, it's it's named Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I would say for a very good reason. You know, Lawrence was was probably the single most important driving force behind that. Uh, certainly not take anything from Edward, uh, uh, take anything away from Edward there. But uh, these are two very bright, very charismatic individuals, and. They had a direct pipeline into Berkeley where there were some incredibly talented, very young um, uh, scientists who could be brought into an additional laboratory. The basic selling point was that Livermore would be created as kind of a uh, uh, an adjunct lab almost to Los Alamos. We're not going to duplicate what Los Alamos is doing. I think the original mission at Livermore was more to provide support, especially in the diagnostic area pertaining to the development of thermonuclear weapons. I don't think that the early sales pitch was necessarily, yeah, we need competition to drive innovation, things like that. But that is what it became uh, very quickly. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the relationship between Livermore and Los Alamos, it's, it's, it's varied over the years. Some years it's been more positive. Some years it's been a little bit more, more negative in the competition sense. Uh, sometimes it depends on person to person, you know, uh, you know, I, there have been areas in history where maybe the relationship between the more senior people at the laboratories has not been that great, but there has been more collaboration in the trenches. And sometimes maybe that's been a little bit reversed too. Uh, at Los Alamos, and I think Livermore both, you know, we, we, the, the, the laboratories give each other a little bit of a ribbing over, over time, you know, and, and I do think that, um, you know, this rivalry and competition has overall been tangibly beneficial to the nation. And we'll talk about some examples of, of that in just a moment. But uh, it is kind of a big brother, little brother relationship. I think that it has been from 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 day one. There's been a little bit of that. Uh, and again, I think that that's good because, you know, when you've got motivated little brother, uh, motivated little brother can do some remarkable things. And Livermore certainly has uh, over, over the years. Los Alamos has also. And so Livermore you know, kind of quickly develops into its own weapons design laboratory. And in 1953, they perform uh, th th their first tests in Nevada. Uh, those tests were called Ruth and Ray. And uh, there's a pretty famous picture of, of Ruth after the test. And so these shots were done on towers. You want to get the nuclear device away from the ground to prevent fallout. Uh, and uh, typically, you would scale the size of the tower to the predicted blast. And so almost every test, there were some remains of the tower. But what you wanted to do was kind of get it close to the ground. And both laboratories over time became very good at that. Ruth, Ruth's tower was largely intact after the test. And, you know, there's a story, and actually one of the things I've been working on with with uh, some of the archivists from Livermore and our own staff, 
is to try and find verification for the story that I'm about to tell you. It's a short story. We have not been able to do that yet, but it's one of these old myths and legends that I think both labs kind of enjoys. Supposedly, one of the senior people at Los Alamos, either uh, on a phone call or maybe in a memo, contacted Livermore after Ruth and said, hey, can we use your tower when you're done with it? <laughs> you know, after, because it was largely intact after that test. And again, I've not found the primary source documentation for that. I don't know if it exists, but on, on I should say on the Los Alamos side, we kind of like that story because eh, little brother didn't make the cut, didn't do that well. Ray was, you know, I would say Ruth and Ray were both kind of mild disappointments. They were not complete failures as they're often billed, but they were, they were kind of mild disappointments to be sure and demoralizing at Livermore at the time. Livermore's third test, which was part of Operation Castle, it was viewed more as a complete failure. And so Livermore out of the gates, three strikes. I mean, it looked like a lot of people that Livermore might go away. And I think that Ernest Lawrence did a lot to, to nurture and to encourage the staff there during those years. Now, many years later, the Livermore folks look back at Ruth, they look at that test in the tower and they say, well, you know, that signifies our heritage of innovation. So I guess, you know, if you look at the two cultures of the lab, they're different. They've always been different. There have been different approaches. Uh, Los Alamos would stake out the most direct route to success because this was not a game. This was not a science fair project. We're talking about weapons used in combat during World War II and ultimately for deterrence. We're not going to give the military something that we are not extremely confident will perform as advertised. And so, of course, we're going to stake out the most direct path to success. It's always been said, and I, and I don't know if there's primary source documentation for this either. Tom Ramos, who has been on the podcast before, may, may know more about this. But I think it's generally accepted that Livermore was directed, look, you can't just copy Los Alamos. You have to do something different. And so if Los Alamos has taken the most sure path to success, Livermore's left with something that is less sure. And so Livermore, they kind of embrace this culture of, you know, this think big, fail big culture. You know what? We're going to try something else. We're going to try something different. We're going to try something that may seem a little bit crazy. And, you know, a lot of times it didn't work. But, you know, every now and then Livermore would try one of these things and it would work and it would revolutionize the, the stockpile. And so that's why, you know, again, as I talked about before, this, this tangible uh, aspect of, of the, the competition being positive, you have laboratories taking these different approaches. And, and I think because of these two approaches, we, we did develop a stockpile that was, you know, uh, very creative when you look at the history of weapons design, uh, innovative, robust, reliable. Um, hence the deterrent value and that we all hope that they will never ever be used in a combat role uh, again. But, uh, but anyway, Livermore did do remarkable things after the Cold War. The, the rivalry, I think, has been healthy for the country. You'll have people from both labs saying the other, <laughs> to the otherwise, but I do think that it could be demonstrated. One of the other things, just really quickly, that we kind of give Livermore a hard time about is that if you look at the number of designs in the stockpile, the number of weapons in the stockpile. Uh, Los Alamos has many, many, many more than Livermore. But again, it's because of this different approach. So we'll give them a hard time, you know, because they don't have nearly as much in the stockpile. But then Livermore will come back rightfully and say, well, yeah, but, you know, all of your weapons in the stockpile have incorporated some of those key features that we came up with that you might never have. And, and so, I mean, it's this back and it's forth. 
And, and I think as long as it, as it remains healthy and it has become toxic at various points in the past, as long as you have this healthy school rivalry, I think it's been to the benefit of the stockpile and the, and the nation and nuclear deterrence, which has worked pretty well so far. Unfortunately for this episode, we've run out of time. But the good news is Alan is going to record a second episode. So we'll, of course, bring Bob out. Alan doesn't know anything about Bob, but we'll bring Bob the genie out in episode two. So thanks for joining us on this episode of Nuclear Kids. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpoff. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast.